Well, tonight, as we go forward in God's word, we're going to be picking it up in chapter 33 in 2 Chronicles. Chapter 33 in 2 Chronicles. And we've come off four amazing chapters with Hezekiah. It was originally my intent to teach on Manasseh last week, but I was just so happy with Hezekiah, I just couldn't do it to you, you know? I had 40 minutes in, I'm like, I just can't do this. Like, well, we'll visit him on the front end. It's like a road trip. You're like, you know, let's just get the hotel. This is our exit right here, and we'll, we'll face that stretch tomorrow when we wake up early. So tonight we're going to pick it up in chapter 33 in 2 Chronicles, a historical record of the kings of Judah, and this is the beginning of the end with Manasseh. And Hezekiah is incredible, but there's a new generation, and his son is not like him, but it does have a good ending for him. So verse 1, chapter 33, if you have a Bible, you can read along. So Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of Son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, so that was emphasized and now sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I've appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I've commanded them according to the whole law, the Old Testament law, and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses." So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Now we've had some really bad kings in the north when we went through 2 Kings. All the kings of the northern tribes of Israel, 20 of them, they were all bad. There wasn't one good one. And as we've seen with the Judah kings in the south, the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, there's a couple of great kings some good kings, and a few bad ones, like Ahaz was really bad. And here comes another one who's really bad. It's Manasseh. In fact, he's so bad, it says that he did worse than the nations that were cast out. So if you go back and think about Leviticus, where God said, for these reasons, I'm casting out the Canaanites, emphasize bestiality, just stuff that was so dark and so depraved and so over the, the cliff on the dark side, It says that Manasseh was worse. So it's just really sad that the spiritual leadership, you have a political leader, he's a spiritual leader of the people under covenant with God, and he's so bad, he's worse than the world. That's just, ah, it's it's grievous. But in his case, there actually is hope that comes from this story. So we pick it up in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. Now, when he was in affliction, 
he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he that is the Lord received his entreaty, heard his supplication and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built the wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, and all the altars he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also his prayer, and how God received his entreaty in all, all of his sin and trespass, and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosei. So Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own place. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. This is, again, a very unique story because thus far, 20 kings in the north, no matter how much they were approved by Elijah or Elisha or any prophet, they never responded under any circumstance. Now, Ahab briefly did something where he humbled himself, and he found mercy for it. So he's a really bad king that found something merciful. So we see that in the 20 kings of the north, even the slightest movement in the right direction, God would bless it, but that never really happened. There never was a true repentance or a true faith from any of those kings, the 20 kings in the north. In the 19 kings in the south, we just saw with Hezekiah that as he was incredible. He's the gold medal winner of the Judah kings. But he did get lifted up. His heart got lifted up and prideful over all of his success that God gave him. But when he was reproved by the Lord, he repented. So he already talked about how there's no one like him. Because all the other kings of Judah, the good ones like uh, Uzziah and others, when they were reproved, they still didn't, in, their, in the back end of their reigns, when they made mistakes and God reproved them, they did not receive it. So you had some good kings who went bad and did not receive correction down the stretch. And here's Manasseh all by himself, no one like him. He's the worst king of them all. He's the very worst king of the Judah kings up to this point in time. In fact, what he did sealed the judgment upon the southern kingdom that was going to come. You know, I say don't cross that line. He crossed that line. And though he personally found salvation and forgiveness and bore the fruit of repentance, he is linked with the judgment and the wrath and the justice of God upon the southern kingdom for all the other sins. In other words, there was lots of sin that happened in the southern kingdom, and there were some bad guys before him, and there was worse guys after him, those last cluster of kings. We'll see them tonight. But when it all comes down to who really put them over the line, it was Manasseh and what we just read right here in this text. Still, though, what an encouraging story. You can't help but think of someone like the thief on the cross, right? I mean, Jesus is on the cross between two criminals. They're both cursing him. And then somehow during that 
three to six hour stretch on the cross, the one criminal realizes, just looking at Jesus on the cross, I mean, he just realized his sin. And in the final moments of his life, in time, space, and matter, his existence as a criminal, hanging on the cross, humiliated for his crimes, he found forgiveness in looking to and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, today you will be with me in paradise. By pure grace, through faith in the Savior, he found absolute forgiveness. And he's someone we referenced the thief on the cross quite frequently as an example of God's saving grace that's available to all of us. So we call that like the deathbed grace, right? When you minister, and I've done this many times, you minister someone on their deathbed. And like, hey, you, you go in with a sense of urgency and desperation to bring Christ into the equation. If you're not sure about someone, where they're at with the Lord and they're dying, you know, you, you become emboldened and you just really bring it. And sometimes there's absolute rejection and sometimes there's openness and you just do what you can. Manasseh, in the zenith of his power and his rebellion against God, God allowed the Assyrians to come and the hooks, you know, I mentioned this, they would put a hook in your nose or in your ear, and they just line you up as slaves and human trafficking, and off you'd go. And he's like a prize catch, but they didn't take him up toward Nineveh. They took him over to Babylon because the Assyrians were still trying to have that expanded empire of what they were doing. That long walk with the hook in your ear with other people, and you're the leader, so you're the most humiliated of all the people that's humiliated going into captivity. Or maybe the hook in your nose, or maybe both. But really that he survived it, cried out to the Lord and was restored is amazing because in museums, multiple museums around the world, there are the tablets. The Assyrians not only conquered everybody, they like to talk about it. And there's more about what they did as a world power conquering the world from the ancient world, if you will, than any other people that did this stuff. And they're just known for their brutality. Now God had sent, it says the Lord sent spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they didn't listen. And yet, in that chastening, in that captivity, he did listen. The long journey, whatever went on when he was there, he came to a place of brokenness. And isn't that what God's wanting to do in all of our lives? The people we love and care about who don't walk with the Lord, who are fighting the Lord, adult children that don't walk with the Lord, adults, you know, your siblings that don't walk with the Lord, maybe parents above you that don't walk with the Lord, maybe peer groups that don't walk with the Lord, people you're praying for, people that are very difficult to work with, and they're rebelling against the Lord and fighting the Lord, particularly people that know about the Lord, like Manasseh did, because it's like he went to Christian school and then went to UC Lose Your Faith, and that's what he did at UC Lose Your Faith. He knew better. But he just rebelled against the Lord, and he was going to do it his way, and he had the power, and that's just the way it was. But you know, when you get stripped of everything, particularly your freedom, and you know the truth, well, train up a child in the way they go, and they, they won't depart from it at some point. It's there. Isn't that the hope of all the people who have prodigal children that are adults, that you're hoping that they'll come around, and you have promises and the words of the Lord that will encourage you on it? His dad was so great, and he was just so the opposite, almost like Franklin Graham. You know how Franklin Graham was such a rebel against everything his dad stood for, Billy. But then, you know, he repented, and he became a different person, and he came to faith. And the rest is church history and shoebox history, right? 
this is such a reminder to us that it's not over till it's over. We don't know what's going on, and we don't know how close someone is to saving grace, but this is why it's so important with the words of Jesus, condemn not lest you be condemned, judge not lest you be judged. It's good to discern evil and to recognize evil people and stay away from that stuff, but it's never our place to be judge and jury of anyone to be too far removed from the grace of God and what God would extend him through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for forgiveness. It's a wonderful reminder that God saves by grace. And he saved this guy by grace. And he was the worst. Can you imagine when he came back and he's tearing down all the bad he had done? And I was like, dude, he's really doing it. He's really doing it. He's, it's for real. Because, you know, when you show up, like, hey, I gave my life to the Lord. And you're like, you're not you, man. There's no way. You're like the worst guy ever. You're the ultimate church kid that rebelled against the Lord. And like, then they see you cleaning things up and setting things up. Like, man, it's for real. He really has changed. He really did repent. And he really did. She really did repent. And she really did turn it around. Here we go. So when we look at the life of Manasseh, be encouraged, WG, body of Christ. Because this is an Old Testament example that shows us so clearly that saving grace is always availed to the person who will cry out for it. And the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As he said through Ezekiel, this, you know, 100 years or so after this. But he takes pleasure that they repent and return to the Lord. And be saved. And Manasseh was saved. And it's just, what a beautiful story. When you think someone's beyond grace, correct your thinking. They're not beyond grace. And like I said with my sister, I just thought she was gone, too far gone to ever come back, out of her mind. But lo and behold, she wasn't out of her mind, but the Lord restored her and saved her. And I just see her praising the Lord these days. And it's like, you, it's a reminder as long as we're alive and someone else is alive, don't give up what the power of God can do in their life. For the gospel is the power of God under salvation, and there's no greater power in the universe than God's spirit to save people from sin, the clutches of the devil, and the death sentence of the grave. So be encouraged by the life of Manasseh. Now, he had a son, and we read about him here in verse 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king and reigned two years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. For Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Ammon is just another one of those 24-year-old men who came and went and did nothing good with their life. And there's lots of them. And what a warning to all, all of us. Man, just what a wasted life. That's all I could think when I read about him. He's just someone that existed that no one cares about and no one mourns because the real story is Josiah now picking up in chapter 34. So now we get to Josiah, that last amazing king of Judah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, so that's when he's 16 years old, he was still young. He began to seek the God of his father, David. And in the twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. So at age 20, he went after it. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars which were above them. He cut down and the wooden images, the carved images, 
and the molded images. He, he broke in pieces and he made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who sacrificed to them. And he was serious, wasn't he? He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did to the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around, with axes. When he had broken down the altars of the wooden images, had beaten the carved images in the powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. So he just, he's like, hey, we just got it. This stuff's got to go. This stuff's just got to go. And, you know, he's young. He's courageous. He got on track with the Lord when he was 16. That means he was going to youth group, had a good foundation. At 20, he was going to campus life or whatever, at college, if you will. And he said, I'm all in. I've got the power to do this, and I'm not going to be destructive with my power and my authority. I'm going to be productive and advance the kingdom. And that's what he did. Then we read in verse 8, In the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors had gathered from the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim, from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin, and which they had brought back to Jerusalem. Then they put it in the hand of the foremen who had oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen who worked on the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. So again, we have contractors, chief contractors, subcontractors. Every building falls in disrepair. They always need upgrades. They gave it, verse 11, to the craftsmen and builders to buy hewn stone and timber for beams and to, the, to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did the work faithfully. Their overseers were Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Mushlam of the sons of Kohathites to super, supervise. Other of the Levites, all of whom were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and were overseers of all who did work of any kind in the service. And some of the Levites were scribes, officers, and gatekeepers. So the priests and Levites were doing whatever needed to be done. You might be a singer, but we got to move some bricks. You just got to do what you got to do. Verse 14. Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given to Moses. So this would have been like Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is it. This is the Old Testament. This is the full revelation of God for them to be understood. Verse 15. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book uh, 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 to Shaphan. And so Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word saying, all the was committed to your servants they're doing, and they've gathered the money which was found in the house of the Lord, and they've delivered it into the hand of the overseers and workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Verse 19. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahakim the son of Shaphan, uh, Abdan, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the, the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those of the king had appointed went to Huldah, the prophetess. So we got a woman prophetess here. She's the wife of Shalom, the son of 
Tokoth, the son of Hasarah, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her to, to that effect. Then she answered and, and, and said this, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who, who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that have been read before the king of Judah. Because they've forsaken me, burnt incense to other gods, and they, they might provoke me to anger with the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you've heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. And surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I'll bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought back the, that word, brought back the word to the king. And then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He gathered everyone together. The priests and the Levites, all the people, great and small, everybody. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which they had found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in the place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand so that inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God all his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. You know, it's interesting, like, so much was against them right here. And we talk about this, sometimes you don't know something, but then when you know, then you know. And when you know, you're accountable. And I think it's amazing to me to think that you have a king here, who, a king of Israel, king of Judah, who was unaware of even what the law actually said. It's amazing to me that he had proactively, at the age of 16, made decisions to follow the Lord. At 20, to go after all these things, to, to burn the altars, to, to scatter the bones. Like, these are powerful statements to the people. He's a strong spiritual leader. And he's all in. And then here, when he's 26, this happens where... They're restoring, they're doing all this stuff at the temple, and he, he hears the law. It's kind of like when you think of certain people, and we'll use Greg Glory as an example in the Harvest Crusades. Most of you are familiar with the scriptures, and most of you heard the gospel growing up, not all of you. But there is something profound for someone when they hear the good news for the first time, like we read about in the book of Acts, and you read about in church history. There's something about when a like in India, when missionaries show up at a village and they preach the gospel, where the Holy Spirit confirms the truth of the person of Christ, and it, it contrasts the idols and the false worships of the people or whatever philosophies and worldviews they had. That when the truth is proclaimed, falsehood is identified. And you go back to like a Greg Glory crusade, even say, for example, at the pond this summer, when he's preaching the gospel, there are people there 
who've come there or watching online who have never heard that Jesus is the Son of God. They've never heard the gospel of grace, that you're saved by faith. They've never heard you can be saved by believing in Jesus and you can pass from death to life. They've never heard that they're sinners under the wrath of God. They just never have heard that. But once the message is proclaimed, then the Spirit can bring conviction, as we're told in John 16, the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit, when the gospel is preached, points people to Jesus and confirms this is true. Now, it's an objective truth. The person and the work of Jesus is absolute truth. But it's a subjective experience for those who hear the truth. Right? Because you've seen it. The gospel goes forth, and some people are under total conviction, and they're responding, and they can't wait to run down there to you know, the stage and commit their life to Christ. And they don't care what anyone thinks, but someone else hears the same truth, and like it says in the parable of the soils, they're like rejecting it, like the birds plucking out of the heart. Of course, the famous parable of the soils that Jesus taught. And they just, or they're resisting it, and they're not going to get it. It's always interesting to see how people respond to the gospel truth for salvation and biblical truth for morality of what's right and wrong. Some people just reject the truth of the scriptures for all things pertaining to life and godliness. But the truth is the truth. And when the truth is open, when the law of the Lord is read, it's, it's going to do what it's going to do. Like it says in Isaiah 55, my, Lord, my word will not return void. And it's piercing of bone and marrow, soul, and spirit. But I have to tell you, in 35 years being a pastor, I just understand why some people so clearly get it and some absolutely do not at all. I just, for the life of me, I just don't understand why something's so clear to me and can be so not clear to someone else. And maybe you feel the same way. But what I always say is, I'm just really glad it is clear to me. And you should be glad it's clear to you too, if it is. Childlike faith is how we're always saved. The gospel is very simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. And there's an accountability. And we shouldn't be afraid of accountability. And when Josiah heard the scriptures, when, man, when he heard the law in Exodus, you say chapter 20 through 24, he's like, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. Then when he heard Moses expounding the law in Deuteronomy, like, man, we are in serious trouble. When he heard Leviticus read, why the people were cast out of the land, and he realizes that, you know, Grandpa Manasseh was worse than any of the Canaanites who were cast out of the land for these things, he's like, man, we are, we are in serious trouble. And what did he do? He ripped his clothes. He cried. He wept. He took it seriously. And that's a good thing. Now, some people are just too serious, and it works against them. Some people, life's a joke, and the Proverbs talks about those cackling fools, and you can't help them. But there's a balance. There's joy in the Lord. There's happy is the woman who trusts in the Lord. But there's a seriousness to things. And the Word of God is serious. Yesterday, I was walking in the neighborhood, and one of my neighbors who loves the Lord and has done ministry with Brian McDaniel in Haiti and stuff, he came riding by, and I had my headphones on, and I'm walking with Fitz, and he goes, he said something, and I pulled out the plug. I was like, hey, how you doing? He's like, hey, did you hear what's going on in Jordan, in the Middle East? I'm like, no, because I don't watch the news, but 
Do you tell? And he's like, ah, oh, and he started saying, like, hey, this is happening, now that's happening, and man, the day of the Lord, Jesus could come back right now. And I'm like, that's right. We need people that ride up on a bike in our neighborhood and remind us that today could be the day of the Lord. Yes and amen. Because listen, if they were under a dark cloud, how much more us? Seriously, WG, body of Christ. I try not to think about it. Because it can just be so overwhelming to really think about our planet right now. And all the demonic forces at work on our planet. All the evil men and women who are conspiring great evils against humanity and the gospel on our planet. I don't let it bother me, but I don't ignore the reality that it's there. And if this is what they are under, one can only imagine with what our country's done and the human race has allowed on planet Earth in the last 30 years, the vast majority of it. Now, we say the vast majority, but really a lot of countries don't think like we think and do what we do. So I shouldn't, you know, there's some countries like, no, we're not embracing this evil, and we don't do this in our country, like Russia and some of, and some of those Middle Eastern countries, like, no, this would never go. But we're the world's influencer, this country, and man, have we influenced the free world for evil without restraint. And one can only wonder, like, when is the day of the Lord? No one gets away with anything. So when I look at this, I think, like, okay, well, I can't control all these things. And there's so much I have. What can you do? I mean, really, like, what can you do? People send me stuff all the time on social media. This video, this thing, that thing. Watch this study, this person, this conspiracy, that thing. And, you know, we used to call them conspiracies 20 years ago. Now they just call it, like, the news. You know, like, it's no longer a conspiracy when it all comes to pass, right? Like, let me tell you, whatever was conspiracy in 2010 has proven itself to be truth, pretty much, by 2023. But what can you do? Except wake up, serve the Lord, and get after with the Lord, and take seriously the things of the kingdom. God put a premium on his humility, his tender heart, his concern, his empathy, and his passion for the kingdom of God. God put a premium on it. So as I look at Josiah, and if someone said, hey, this is the law, this is where you live, this is your people, this is what's going on in a lot of churches, and you're just like, oh, man. Well, not to be defeated or discouraged, but just to really care and to be reverent and serious about the things of God. And I speak for myself, but the Lord said, because your heart was tender, so no matter how dark the times get, we got to keep a tender heart. And the Lord said, because you humbled yourself and because you wept and you tore your clothes, it is good to care. And just know this, what grieves us, if you're walking with the Lord, what grieves you, it grieves the Lord first. And no one gets away with anything. And Josiah found mercy and God gave him a good word in the midst of this. So I just, there's an application here that Josiah had progressive faith. At 16, he did this. At 20, he did that. At 26, he did this. He just, he kept moving forward with the Lord, and he was reverent with the things of God. He was serious with the things of God. And like Hezekiah, he made a covenant with God. Remember we talked about Hezekiah made a covenant? Like, not too many people did that. Josiah did the same thing. That's why these guys are the greatest kings in the history of Judah. They were serious, and they got after it. Chapter 35. Now, Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. 
And he set the priests in the duties and encouraged them. Isn't that what Hezekiah did? He encouraged the priests. Same thing, man. You know, like, what's fruitful is fruitful in every generation. For the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who, who, are, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house Put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instructions of King David of Israel and the written instructions of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the father's houses, of your brethren, the lay people, the common people, and according to the division of the father's houses of the Levites. Put yourselves in order. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So again with Israel, just a reminder, once they realize what the law is and the truth is they immediately want to restore the Passover because that's the flashpoint of shed blood, substitution, forgiveness, and being right with God. And so the Passover is huge with Josiah, just as it is with, was with Hezekiah. Now again we read on verse 7. Then Josiah gave the, the common people, the lay people, lambs and young goats from the flock, all for the Passover offering for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. And these were from the king's possessions. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jehiliel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priest. For the Passover offering, 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, his brother, Shimeiah, and Nethanel, and Hashabiah, and Jeliel, and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So you have Passover offerings plus the typical altar offerings as well. Verse 10, so the service was prepared and the priests stood in their places and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command and they slaughtered the Passover offerings. The priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the common people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. That is the law. And so they did with the cattle also. They roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinances but the other holy offerings, they boiled in pots, in cauldrons, and in pans, and divided them quickly among all the lay or common people. Then afterwards, they prepared the proportions. Then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared the portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, Jedithun, the king's seers. Also the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So everyone's doing what they're supposed to do, and it's all covered. There's order and design. Verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like this since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. It does seem similar to Hezekiah, because this was a big thing that we talked about with Hezekiah. What made him so great is reinstituting the Passover. So you've got to like clear out all the idolatry and all the falsehood, get rid of that. Then you've got to restore the, the temple worship and all those things related to it and do that, get that all going again. But really, again, for these people, the flashpoint was Passover. Because the blood over the doorpost was represented that somebody's got to die, and the wage of sin is death. So we're under a death sentence. And so when they put the blood over the doorpost, it was recognizing that we've passed from death to life because somebody else died. And we know that Jesus is the fullness and the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. And even tonight with communion elements, the cup represents his blood shed for us. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And again, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a shadow. What they're doing with this Passover feast is a shadow of celebrating salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that he, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of human efforts, lest anyone should boast, but we're saved by grace because we're saved to become his workmanship. That's what they're celebrating here. It's a shadow of things to come. We're, we're linked to them. And no one had celebrated like this in the 250 years of the southern kingdom. Hezekiah's was a free-for-all. Remember, we talked about that. It was like, hey, grab the priest, grab the Levite. Why are those guys crying over there? They just made it happen a month late, and they made it happen. But look at Josiah. He's like, it's intentional. It's at the right time. Everyone's where they're supposed to be. It's seven days. Like, he's serious. Like, he's a guy, he's a metrics guy. He's going to do it the way God said to do it, and he's going to do it right, and it's lead, follower, get out of the way. We're, we're making things right with the Lord right now, and the people that lived at that time, I'm sure they're thanking him for all eternity. Because of all the bad kings that ever lived, this was a great king, and he led this generation in the most beautiful Passover feast in centuries, properly for the glory of the Lord and to the benefit of their souls. Isn't that beautiful? It just reminds us that God, God's always going to honor doing the right thing. And he did the right thing, and, the, and he brought the blessing to the people. When you and I do the right thing, we please the Lord, and we bring blessings to the people around us. That's what Josiah did. Verse 20, and after all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, oh, there's always a guy like that, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house which I make war, for God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servant, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the, that chariot, put him into the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. Man, I've, I've been from Megiddo to Jerusalem. He's, he's dying in a chariot on that distance. So he died, and he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Jude and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. 
Jeremiah also lamented Josiah, that's Jeremiah the prophet, to this day all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So impactful was his life, and so far-reaching was it that to this day, so to this day, the time that this book was written by the Holy Spirit through the leadership would be from the return of captivity. So for, during the 70 years of wilderness, the 70 years in captivity of Babylon, they made laments over Josiah, the last great king of Judah, and they sang about it in, in a sorrowful way because it was the end of something glorious and nothing really good came in that remaining back sequence we're going to see in just a moment. He, they lamented him, and you know, when, when, when godly women die, people lament it. When godly men die, people lament it. Because, again, we say this, heaven's gain should be earth's loss. And people like this, they're hard to replace. And I thought about this, because, you know, who knows if Necho is right? And he didn't even serve Jehovah. Necho serves the gods of Egypt, so who even knows what he's talking about. And if Necho came to me and said, don't meddle with this, I'd be like, who are you, man? You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why, why would we think Necho is saying anything for, for the Lord, right? Like, to be, you're Josiah, you've done everything right. Like, why would you think this, this knucklehead from Egypt coming through your territory that you're over is speaking for the Lord? You would have no precedent to think that. I'm just saying. Maybe the Lord would tell him if you test all things. But also, as Sam keeps pointing out all the time with Josiah, judgment can't come until Josiah's gone. And it's time for judgment. And however this came about, this is it. Uh, you know, he took an arrow and I think of his last words, because it quotes him. Did you catch that? It quotes him. So think about this quote. Take me away, for I am severely wounded. That's you and me on the day of the Lord. However we're going to go. In essence, we're severely wounded. Those last few moments, those last few hours, you're laboring, your breath, maybe it was an accident, maybe you just dying of a terminal illness, maybe just old age, but the body labors. I am severely wounded. But look what it says about the summary of his life. Josiah and his goodness, according to verse 26, it says, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord. His life is summarized. This is his tombstone. This is what's on his bulletin when he came to his memorial service. Josiah's goodness, according to all that was written in the law of the Lord. Man, he served the Lord. He obeyed the Lord, and God's word governed his heart. Now, tonight we're going to read chapter 36. It's important that we finish 2 Chronicles tonight. And these are bad guys uh, through and through. So let's get this, and we'll get on to communion. And uh, we'll wrap up 2 Chronicles tonight. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt disposed him at at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho made Jehoahaz's brother, it took Jehoahaz's brother and took him and carried him off to Egypt. Jehoahaz died in Egypt. So one brother's out, he wasn't good, the other brother replaces him, gets a name change. Verse 5. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did, or was found against him, indeed they're written in the book of the kings of Israel, in Judah, and then Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord, and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. They just keep turning him over. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against, against turning the Lord and against the Lord and turning the Lord of God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, and they despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was just no more, there's no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young men or virgins, young women, or on the aged or the weak. He gave them into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and all the treasures of the king and his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away into captivity to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. To fulfill, verse 21, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, that is the land she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdoms, also put it in writing, saying, Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all his people? May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And that's how it ends, right? I was like, whoa, that's an abrupt ending to not see that coming. That's just, but that's not the end, right? When we start Ezra next week, it'll recount this very text almost word for word and take us forward into things that happen after this. A couple of closing thoughts on this chapter and this book. Jeremiah is mentioned to us a couple of times in this backstretch. The book of Jeremiah is a lot of chapters. It's complex and, and it's hard. It's kind of a, the cadence is hard to follow. It's a tricky book because there's prophetic things, historical things, and they're not always in place and whatnot. But one thing for sure is Jeremiah really tried to help these kings make the good decisions down the stretch, and none of them, particularly Zedekiah, was the worst. None of them listened to him. 
Zedekiah fought against Jeremiah, persecuted Jeremiah, had him in prison, and eventually Jeremiah, uh, Zedekiah fled for his life, was caught by the Babylonians, saw his sons executed before him, had his eyes gouged out, and that's how he ended his life. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he perpetually was in sorrow and lamenting for the people and what they were going through. And he watched the sequences because the Babylonian captivity came in three sequences. One, two, and three over about a 20-year period. And he watched it all. But he was faithful. And one of the things that he did in his faithfulness is recorded for us in Jeremiah 29.10 where God spoke that famous passage that my thoughts for you are not thoughts of evil but good thoughts. Thoughts to give you a future and a hope. And those words of Jeremiah in 29.10 really were the words for 70 years a future generation could hold on to as they built houses, planted vineyards, and lived their lives in a distant land. God promised after 70 years they would come back, and they did come back. And he spoke of Cyrus uh, centuries before he existed. And then he did exist and do exactly what God said he would do. And so what this really leaves us with is not so much these bad kings, but a good God. And no matter when it seems like it's the end for something, it's always the beginning of something else. So even when it's the end of the world, because a lot of people that send me stuff saying, it's the end of the world, I'm like, it could be. But just know this, for people of faith, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and God makes all things new. It's never the end for the people of faith. It's just a passing of this, and a moving toward that. It's always forward, onward, and upward from glory to glory with the living God. So don't let these bad kings who get their name changes mess you up. Just It's better to be weeping with Jeremiah and, and, and just know, man, his thoughts are not evil. No matter what's going on in our timeline, no matter what you see or hear, his thoughts for his people are not evil, but they're good thoughts to give his church and his people a future and a hope for all eternity. Yes and amen.